So I would invite you to turn to the book of Zechariah with me and we'll continue um, in chapter 1. Uh, as Dr. Fraser and uh, Dr. Abner Chow, they said that the book of Zechariah, or the name, I should say, Zechariah, means Yahweh remembers. And you can even hear the name Yah, the short form of the name Yahweh, in the book, in the name Zechariah, right? Yah remembers, Zechariah, just like Isaiah, or Jeremiah, right? So here you have Zechariah, meaning Yahweh remembers. And what this means is that God remembers all the promises that he has ever made. And ultimately, he will fulfill all of these promises. And the reason that God uh, revealed that he remembers everything, the reason that he needed to reveal to the people of Israel that he remembers everything is because the people were beginning to wonder and they were beginning to think, has God forgotten us in this time of Zechariah in this period of history? The situation that the Israelites were experiencing in this time of Zechariah was kind of like what Charles Dickens said. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The people of Israel returned from exile, so they were back in Judah. So that's really, you know, the best of times that you can imagine. But life back in the land was difficult. And so you have the worst of times. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he promised that Israel would be a great nation. It would rule over the land from Egypt all the way across the ancient Near East to the Euphrates. Said that it would be a free nation. In later prophecies, God promised that the glory of God would emanate from Jerusalem, would go out from Jerusalem throughout the whole world. Well, none of this was happening in the time of Zechariah. They weren't seeing any of this. When the people returned from exile, the enemies around them oppressed them. The Israelites tried to rebuild the temple and their enemies attacked them. They tried to rebuild Jerusalem, and their enemies tried to kill them. You know how the people actually felt when they returned? Nehemiah records this. This is in Nehemiah 9.36, speaking for the people. This is what he says. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers, we are slaves in it. The people returned from slavery in exile to the land of Judah. And Nehemiah says that because life was so difficult, they felt like slaves. So it really was the best of times and the worst of times. And as the people wondered whether God abandoned them or if he was still with them, they actually begin to live their lives as if they were on their own. They stopped building the temple and they started focusing on their own life. They lost the eternal perspective that they were supposed to have, and they lived as if this life was all there was. And so that's why God sent Haggai and Zechariah, and they both came to Israel, and they preached to them, and they said to them, people, stop focusing on yourselves and start focusing on God. Stop making your houses fancy and build and finish building the house of God. And this is why God gave Zechariah the eight visions that we're going to study in order to exhort the people and to encourage the people at the same time to focus their lives back on God. 
And the message that Zechariah brings to the people is this. God has not forgotten. God is there, and God is not silent. The promises that God gave to you at the right time, he will fulfill them. But as for you now, you focus on God and you rebuild the temple. That's the message that Zechariah was preaching to the people. You know, people in trial, we need to have a full, we need to have a divine perspective that comes from the scriptures, that comes through revelation. And so God gives Zechariah these eight visions to give the people this divine perspective. And these eight visions achieve this purpose as a whole, but they also achieve it in a very specific way. And so here I have the eight visions just listed as according to their titles. Uh, but the, the way that these visions are presented is in parallel form, and they correspond to one another in, in themes. So you can see that the first uh, vision and then the eighth vision relate to each other, and they both speak about how God remembers remembers Israel, and how God will fulfill his promises to Israel. Then you have the second and the seventh vision correspond, and they speak about how God will judge the wicked nations who have been opposing Israel. Then you have the third and the sixth vision correspond, and there God speaks how he will restore the nation of Israel. And then you have these two visions in the center, the high priest and the lampstand. And these two visions in the center, they focus on the Messiah. He puts the Messiah at the center of his visions, and the Messiah serves the purpose of encouraging the people to focus their attention on God. He's presented as a priest and as a king. He is the one who will intercede for Israel as a priest, and he is the king who will rule over Israel in righteousness. And so the structure of this, as you can see on the screen, the structure of these visions is kind of like an arrow where the point, the central point of the arrow pierces the object that it's intended to go through. And that's the central point here, the Messiah. He pierces the attention. He pierces the hearts of the people as he is calling them to focus on God. And so today we begin to focus on the first vision, the man on the horse or the man on the red horse among the myrtle trees. And as we look at the first vision, we see three characteristics come out from this. And these three characteristics about God, they exhort and they encourage the Israelites, and they should exhort and encourage us to focus on God. And they remind us that first, God is active. Secondly, that God is faithful. And thirdly, that God remembers. In other words, God is there and he is not silent. God begins the vision, this first vision, by showing that God is active. Even when it seems like God has forgotten us, or he's ignoring you, or he's not doing anything in your life when it seems like that, God wants us to understand that he is not passive. And this is what he reveals to Zechariah to bring to the people. His plan is active. The Messiah is active. The victory that he promised to the Israelites is an active promise. 
And understanding these truths from the scriptures is crucial to having the right perspective. God even made sure that he revealed this vision at the right time so that the people would understand that this is a significant vision. Go look at verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. Zechariah says here, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. Now, you already know that dates are important in Zechariah, dates are important in Haggai, and so here we begin with the 24th day, 24th date, and they associated the 24th date with important events, and we do the same thing, right? I can say to you the 4th. What do you think of when I say the 4th? The 4th of July, or I can say to you the 24th. What is that? Christmas, right? And so they knew that the 24th was a significant date and that it had specific relevance and here that it was related to the building of the temple. After Haggai preached to the people and he called them to rebuild the temple, they started building the temple on the 24th of the sixth month. And so now God comes and God brings this vision to Zechariah on the 24th of the 11th month. And so the people would have understood that this is important. And here is the vision in verse 8. Zechariah says, I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Now I know. That you read this, and sometimes it's like, what did that just say? Okay, so I tried my best to put some images on the screen to give us an image of what Zechariah might have seen. Obviously, this is uh, not going to be the exact thing, but here's what we're talking about. There is a man on a red horse. There is no man in the image because I couldn't find one with that, but... (laughs) There is a red horse. The man is riding on a red horse. He's standing among the myrtle trees around him. And behind the man are red, sorrel, and white horses. And you can see those. And sorrel is kind of like this mix between red and brown, maybe like a a light reddish brown of sort. So this is what God shows to Zechariah. So in a time when Israel is oppressed, when it's depressed, when the people are losing their strength and they're wondering, did God forget us? God gives Zechariah a vision to show to him that he is active. He is ready with an army for battle to defend Israel. God sends a man on the red horse to bring this message to Israel. But we can ask, who is this man? We don't know right away who he is, but he definitely seems important according to this description. We know that the title man is used for important individuals throughout the scriptures. You remember that when Jacob wrestled in Genesis 32, he wrestled with a man. But then in Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, it literally says, Jacob wrestled with God. And so you know that that man was God. Daniel, Daniel saw a vision of one who is like the Son of Man. 
And this individual who is like the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and kingdom. And by the way, this is the title that Jesus uses to refer to himself, the Son of Man. So we want to ask, who is this man in Zechariah on a red horse standing among the myrtle trees? Now, if you were to go to verse 11, you will see there that this man standing among the myrtle trees, he is identified with and identified as the angel of Yahweh. He is the angel of Yahweh. And then you recall that the angel of Yahweh is actually God himself. When God spoke to Moses in Exodus 3 from the burning bush, it says that uh, the angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses. But then immediately after, it says, and so God, Yahweh, spoke to Moses. So the angel of Yahweh is God. And you understand this, and you understand that this man who appears to Zechariah among the myrtle trees is actually God himself. But then you ask, how can God appear to man? God himself said to Moses, no one can see God and live. And there's only one explanation for this. That he has to be, the angel of Yahweh has to be the second person of the Trinity. This is the pre-incarnate Christ who is God. You cut my microphone off on that statement? (laughs) No, it's back. Yes, I'm back. <laughs> the pre-incarnate, the second, the angel of Yahweh, the uh, has to be the second person of the Trinity, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, who is God. And because Jesus is one with His Father, He says, "He who He who has seen Me has seen the Father." Right, So this is the man who appears to Zechariah. He is the Messiah himself. So now take this in. When the people of Israel are, are at a low point in their life, when they think God has forgotten them, God the Father sends his son, the Messiah, the pre-incarnate Jesus, to encourage Israel and to tell them that I remember you. I have not abandoned you, and I am fighting for you with this entire host, entire army of hosts. And as we look at this vision, we see that all of the details in this vision point to the fact that God is engaged with all of the needs of Israel, that God is active. The fact that the Messiah comes on a red horse shows that God is ready to confront all of the challenges, all of the enemies of Israel. Red represents blood, judgment, vengeance. Dr. Fraser mentioned this last time. In Revelation, John sees a red horse, and this red horse represents how people will essentially fight and slaughter each other with immense bloodshed. Well, with the Messiah on a red horse, God was showing that the Messiah was always ready, that he was always on alert to charge into battle and to fight for Israel. Then the fact that the Messiah is standing among the myrtle trees means that the Messiah will be fully triumphant because this is what the myrtle trees represent. Myrtle trees were trees, bushes that were used to build booths in the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths 
celebrated how God brought the Israelites out of Exodus through the wilderness and triumphantly into the promised land. So the myrtle trees were associated with triumph. And the, the fact that the Messiah is standing among the myrtle trees signifies that he will be victorious. And with all of this, here's another amazing beauty in this. The Messiah is standing in the ravine. The Messiah is standing in the ravine. And this would have been the lowest point of the Kidron Valley. And you can see it on the screen here. Lowest point in the Kidron Valley just outside of Jerusalem. And the significance of this place is that earlier in history, when the Babylonians attacked Israel and the Israelite army fled, they fled to this place where they were defeated. Now the Messiah is standing in that very place where Israel had been defeated, but he is standing in triumph, in victory, with a promise to Israel that he will fight for them. God was showing that he was going to reverse all of the defeat and all of the oppression and all of the suffering that the Israelites had suffered up to this point. And then all of the different colored horses behind the Messiah that were standing in the previous image, they showed how powerful God is, how powerful the Messiah is in his mission to fight the enemies of Israel and how definitive his victory would be. The red horses, as I said, they represent judgment and vengeance. The white horses represent purity and victory. And the sorrel horses represent both, that there's going to be a process, blood and fighting, but that it's all going to lead to ultimate victory for the Messiah. And these horses and the riders, they were Yahweh's army of hosts, and they depicted God's immense power. And God wanted Zechariah to see this so that he would be encouraged that the powerful God was on his side. And Zechariah got this point. The expression Yahweh of hosts appears 53 times in the book of Zechariah. There's 14 chapters, just about 200 verses. And of those, there are 53 references to Yahweh of hosts. Because Zechariah understood that God is mighty and that God was on Israel's side. So you think about this and you understand that sometimes we cannot see what's going on. Sometimes it seems like nothing is happening around us. Sometimes it seems like God is not doing things around us. But God shows here to Zechariah that he is active. And we get caught up in all of the situation in our life, whether it's immediately around us or in politics or in, in the world, uh, broadly speaking, it makes us forget that we need to focus on God because God is acting. God is acting behind the scenes sometimes. We forget this. And this is what was happening in Zechariah's day. So God gave Zechariah this first vision to remind Israel, don't lose focus. Focus on God. God is not passive, God is active. Then, secondly, this vision, or God reveals through this vision, that God is faithful. God reveals that he is faithful, first of all, he's faithful to inspect and to be aware of the, sit the situation around him on earth. When Zechariah sees the man on the red horse and all of the other horses 
behind him, the natural question is, okay, so what does all of this mean? What is going on here? And this is what Zechariah says in verse 9. He says, my Lord, what are these? And so the interpreting angel, this is the angel who's explaining the vision to him. The interpreting angel says to him, I will show you what these are. And then at that point, the Messiah, the uh, angel of Yahweh steps in, the pre-incarnate Christ. He speaks up and he gives the explanation. And in verse 10, this is what he says. These are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. The horses were going throughout the earth on a kind of a military expedition to gather information about what was going on and then to bring a report about the earth back to the angel of Yahweh, to the Messiah standing before Zechariah here. Now, interestingly, this language of them going throughout the earth, it's the very same language that is used to describe Satan in Job chapter 1. Right? Satan was going throughout the earth to and fro, seeking someone to accuse before God. So what does this mean that it's the same language? Well, God wants Zechariah to be encouraged that while the enemy is roaming around the earth to and fro, seeking someone to devour, God is not passively sitting by. God is inspecting the earth, and he is aware, fully aware of the state of the world, and he is facing the question, is the world ready for Christ? to begin the final battle against Satan. We may not always see it, but God is active behind the scenes, and he is faithful to his plan of victory. However, sometimes we have to wait, right? That's the reality, because God operates in his perfect timing, not on our misguided idea of when things should take place. And this is what Zechariah learns here also. Israel needed to wait. The angels patrolling the earth said in verse 11, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is sitting still and quiet. Now, you might say this is good, right? There's peace. There's quiet. Isn't that good? Sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. In this case, it isn't. How do I know that? Well, look at the next verse, just very quickly, verse 12. When the angels say that there's quiet on the earth, the angel of Yahweh responds in this way. He says, O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? His response is, how long is this going to last, this oppression against Israel? So in this context, peace and quiet means that Israel will continue to suffer. But we still can ask, how does peace and quiet mean this in this context? Well, the prophet said that before God establishes true peace, before he establishes his kingdom, there will not be rest, but unrest. There's going to be judgment of the nations. There's going to be a great battle, Armageddon. So before true peace is established in the millennial kingdom, it will not be peaceful. And this is what the angels bring back to the, uh, to the angel of Yahweh. When they say that there is peace and quiet, that means that the ultimate and true peace is not yet here, which means that Israel had to wait. 
This means that this stillness and this quiet was actually not true peace. That the nations were quiet in their fake, in their superficial, in their smug self-security. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. We see this um, in Jeremiah 48 where Moab was quiet in its drunken sense of safety. Or in Ezekiel 16:49, where Samaria just enjoyed its peace and quiet of sin. So this peace and quiet that the world had was not true peace. And of course, this meant that Israel had to wait, and this meant that full victory was not yet coming, and this, of course, meant that Zechariah would have been tremendously disappointed. Now, I'm sure all of you have your share of disappointments in life. And yesterday, I was at an event where I was reminded of one of my disappointments, major disappointments in life, which just keeps you know, stands above all the others. And I've shared this one before with you guys a few years ago, but I'll mention it again just because it's such an influential part of my life. <laughs> I was at UCLA doing my undergrad, and uh, I applied for a scholarship that I thought I was going to get. I mean, I still just think that I deserve it. But <laughs> <laughs> it was a major scholarship, $4,000. In 2001, 20 years ago, $4,000 was a lot of money, like $40,000 today maybe. Um, It was a multicultural scholarship, and I thought I was the perfect fit for it. So in my application for the scholarship, I described that I have a Russian mom. My dad is Polish. I was born in Latvia. We immigrated to America. As we were immigrating, we had extended stays in Austria and then Italy. And so here I was doing my undergrad in English literature, Russian literature, and I was taking Hebrew on the side. So, I mean, I would give myself a scholarship for that, right? (laughs) So some time passed, and I got an email from the Office of Scholarships, and I opened it, and it's... I was thrilled, actually. It said, congratulations, uh, you have been awarded the multicultural scholarship in the amount of $4,000. Awesome. Praise God. So I immediately called the scholarship office, and I said to them, Hi, this is uh, Yosef Zakovich. I just got an email that I received the Multicultural Scholarship, and I just wanted to see what I do next in order to transfer the money to my university account. And so the woman on the other line, she said, okay, what's your name again? I said, Yosef Zakovich, and she says, okay, Yosef Zakovich, there's a pause, and then she says, oh. I hear, oh, and I'm thinking, what does that mean, right? Oh. And she says, Mr. Zakovich, I'm really sorry, but there was a mistake. <laughs> you guys said, oh, thank you. <laughs> I said, mistake? And she says, yes, we're really sorry, but a wrong letter was sent to you. I said, a wrong letter. So I said, so I didn't get the scholarship? And she said, no, you didn't get the scholarship. At that point, I said, oh, right? <laughs> So, I mean, to say that I was disappointed is an understatement. I was crushed, I was devastated, I was depressed. So, like I said last time, what I did was I went to a cafeteria nearby and I bought myself an expensive burrito. And uh, (laughs) that's how I was reminded of this yesterday because we were served burritos. And so uh, I thought, that brings good memories. (laughs) Well, that was, you know, that's just a minimal disappointment, relatively speaking. But when you think about Zechariah, 
There is no doubt Zechariah was disappointed that Israel had to wait, that the victory was not yet coming. But even with this disappointment, the vision still shows that God was faithful. God wanted Israel to be encouraged by God's faithfulness. God was faithful to survey, to patrol the earth, to understand all of the things that were going on. And he was faithful to, be, uh, to, to his plan to conquer the enemies and to protect Israel. And God wanted Zechariah to know that everything that he was seeing, and even though that Israel had to wait, God was still ultimately in control, and God was faithful to his plan for Israel. Now, in addition to this, and related to this, really, God was also faithful to Israel in constantly interceding for his people. When it became clear that Israel had to wait, uh, what was the response of the angel of Yahweh? Look at the text, verse 12. The response of the angel of Yahweh, this is what he says, O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? Now we know that Christ intercedes for us now. 1 John 2 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But in this passage, we see that the Messiah, Christ, was doing this in history as well. He was interceding for Israel. And he intercedes here with the most effective intercession possible. He says, O Yahweh of hosts, appealing to the name of Yahweh, to the way that God revealed himself to Israel and committed himself to Israel. He appeals to the compassion of Yahweh. He says, how long will you have no compassion? In other words, when will you start having compassion for Israel? He appeals to the sovereign will of God, saying that God had been indignant these 70 years, meaning that a period of this indignation has come to an end. Will you now start having compassion on Israel? And so as a result of this intercession, effective intercession, Yahweh responds. And the text in verse 13 reads this. Yahweh answered the angel who was speaking with me with good words, comforting words. Well, what are these good and these comforting words? The text doesn't elaborate on this, but Isaiah 40 uses the same words. Comfort, God says, comfort, O comfort my people. And then the rest of Isaiah goes on to describe what that means. It means that God will save Israel through the suffering servant. God will bring his people home to Israel. He will provide peace across the world. He will fill the world with his glory so that all of the peoples come to worship him. This is the kind of comfort that God was giving to Zechariah here as well. And so even though Israel had to wait, God comforted them by revealing that his plan for Israel had not changed and that his promise would be fulfilled. God is faithful. That is the message that God was giving to Zechariah. And when we think about this, we worship the same God and the same principles apply to us and they should encourage us as well. Well, God reveals in this vision that God is active. He reveals that God is faithful. And then he reveals that God remembers. God remembers everything that he promised. And he will fulfill everything that he ever said that he would do to Israel. As you look at this, nevertheless, you can say that God's involvement in this should not be doubted because God is active. God's faithfulness should not be doubted because he's committed to Israel, to what he said. 
right? But you could say, theoretically, maybe God forgot some of the promises. And so that's why he's not acting. That's why he's not doing what he said he would do. Well, to answer this objection, God reveals that he remembers everything he ever promised. First thing that he reveals here is that he remembers his zeal for Israel. In verse 14, it says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. God's jealousy for Israel, his zeal for Israel, means that he won't just sit passively by while Israel obeys or while Israel disobeys or while nations around Israel oppress Israel. In fact, in Isaiah 31.5, God promised that he was committed to, def- to defending Israel. Excuse me. It says in Isaiah 31.5, Like flying birds, so Yahweh of hosts will defend Jerusalem. And so then what about the punishment that Israel was suffering, especially during the time of Zechariah? That punishment was the result of God's jealousy for Israel. God was punishing them because of their spiritual adultery. If he hadn't been jealous for them, He would have simply said, you don't want to be my people. That's fine. Do what you want. But he didn't say that. God wanted to call Israel his people. He wanted Israel to call him his, their God. God wanted to restore Jerusalem and Zion, and he wanted to make it a royal city, just like it had been in the past, but even greater than that. He wanted to make Jerusalem the epicenter of the world from which Christ would reign. God remembered this jealousy for Israel, and he showed this zeal for them because he loved them. Well, secondly, Zechariah declares here that God remembers his condemnation of Israel's enemies. In verse 15, God said, I am very wrathful with the nations who are at ease. For I was only a little wrathful with Israel, that is. But they, the nations, helped increase the calamity. When Israel sinned, God was angry with them. So he used other nations to punish the nation of Israel. Assyria, Babylon. But these nations went overboard in oppressing Israel. In Isaiah 47, verse 6, God speaks of the viciousness that Babylon applied against Israel. And God says here, I was furious with my people, and I gave them into your hand, Babylon, but you did not show compassion to them. God was certainly wrathful against Israel for their sins. But when the nations mistreated them, the wrath that he had against Israel, according to this verse, was a little wrath compared to the wrath that he would have against the nations who oppressed God's people. So God tells Zechariah here that he remembers his condemnation of Israel's enemies. Third, Zechariah declares here that God remembers his commitment to Israel. In verse 16, God says, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it declares Yahweh of hosts, and the measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. 
God remembers his commitment to return to Jerusalem. He already said this in verse 3. But he's saying this again because he wants us to understand that he is determined to do this, to return to Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 10, the glory of God departed from Jerusalem because of the sin of Israel. But here God says, I will return to you. God remembers his commitment to have compassion on Israel, that motherly care and affection for Israel. Earlier, the angel of Yahweh said to Yahweh, how long will you not have compassion? Well, here God says he will have compassion on Israel. God remembers his commitment to build his house in Jerusalem. He refers to it as a house because that will be his dwelling place. But notice that he calls it my house. It will be his personal dwelling place. God will come to the temple in his glory when Israel will return to him. And then the nations will come to Jerusalem. The nations will come to God and they will come to the temple and they will worship God. Well, four years after Zechariah preached this, the temple was rebuilt. But even though it was rebuilt, that didn't fulfill this prophecy because Israel had not fully returned to God. And the glory of God did not rule from Jerusalem all over the world. That didn't happen in Zechariah's time. But it will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom when Christ returns, when Christ reigns. At the same time, the fact that they did build a temple in their time, that was God's way of showing to them that I am committed to you. I have not changed my plans. I will fulfill the promises but they will be fulfilled in the millennium. And then the fact that it says here that a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem, it's another way of saying that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. In 2 Kings 21, it says that God stretched out a line over Jerusalem to destroy the city because Jerusalem was wicked, because the the people of Israel were sinful. Well, now God promises that he will stretch out a line to build Jerusalem, Again, the reverse of what was happening. God will reverse the punishment and he will bless the people. He will rebuild Jerusalem and it will be the center capital of the world. Well, 80 years after Zechariah, Jerusalem was more or less rebuilt. But it was only more or less rebuilt. It wasn't built the way that God prophesies here through Zechariah or in Ezekiel chapters 40. Through 48. So the fulfillment of this prophecy will also be fulfilled only in the millennium when Christ returns and when he will reign from Jerusalem all over the world. Finally, Zechariah declares here that God remembers the ultimate outcome for Israel, the ultimate end for Israel. In verse 17, the angel says to Zechariah, again, Call out, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, My cities will again overflow with good, and Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And as we look at this, we see that in the end, there will be spiritual restoration. God says, My cities will overflow with good. Remember in Hosea 1.9, God said to the Israelites, You are not my people, I am not your God. Well, here God says that Israel will be made up of my cities. 
there's a complete reversal here as well. That's because Israel will look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will repent, Zechariah 12. There will be a spiritual restoration. There will be a physical restoration as well. The cities of Israel will overflow with good, it says. And we saw in Haggai 2, God said that the nations will bring their wealth to Israel. So all of the attention and all of the blessings, physical restoration, will go on Israel and specifically on Jerusalem. It says that God will comfort Zion, namely Jerusalem, as he makes it the capital of the world at that time. And with all of this, God will choose Jerusalem. And this is important. After all of these years of disobedience, rebellion, sin that the Israelites were harboring that they refused to let go of, after exile, one could say that maybe God has rejected Jerusalem. Maybe God has rejected Israel. Maybe God will choose somebody else. But God says, I will choose Jerusalem again. This would have been particularly encouraging to Zechariah because Zechariah is returning from exile. He's returning to a destroyed Jerusalem. And it's on his mind, is this the end of Jerusalem as we know it? Is this the end of the nation of Israel as we know it? But God encourages him and he says to him, I am committed to Jerusalem now and in the future. And so in the end... God says, I remember the full restoration that I have promised to Israel. Now, let me engage you guys with this one. I'm going to read verse 17 again and give attention to what word is repeated here over and over. Verse 17. The angel says to Zechariah here, again, call out, saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts. My cities will again overflow with good. And Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Again, simple word, almost meaningless. Some, you could almost even just remove it from the translation. But the repetition of this word emphasizes the fact that God says what once was will once again be. But... In this context, it will be even greater than it was. But it will take place. So according to this vision, God will fulfill what he promised, and he will fulfill it even in a greater way than that it had existed previously. He will call Jerusalem my city. That will be the greatest expression of his commitment to Israel. God says, I remember everything I ever promised, and I will fulfill it. So as God gives this vision to Zechariah, God encourages Zechariah that it may seem like nothing is happening. It may seem like there's no activity around you, around Jerusalem, or there's bad activity around Jerusalem and Israel. But God reminds and God encourages Zechariah, God is active. God is faithful to his plan, and God remembers everything. You know, similarly for us as well, we may not be able to see God, God's work around us, to see what he's doing. Sometimes it may seem like things just aren't happening, 
But God reveals here that he is always working behind the scenes. In the supernatural realm, he is at work. And he's advancing history. He's moving history towards this glorious end in which there will be only righteousness, no sin, the King Messiah ruling the world, and everyone with a pure heart glorifying him. God says that he is doing this right now, even if we can't see it with our own eyes. So in the words of Francis Schaeffer, the message here is, God is there. He is not silent. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that we can take comfort in the fact that you are present, in the fact that you are active, that you're faithful to all of the promises that you have made. Lord, that you remember every single detail that you have said. Lord, we thank you that we have full confidence that even when we look around us and it may seem like things are falling apart, like the darkness, immorality, sin is conquering this world, dominating even in our own contexts. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you're in control. And we thank you that you have given us this word to encourage us, to give us this strength when life is particularly difficult, to show us that, no, you are active, you are faithful, and you are committed to your people. Lord, we ask that you would help us to depend on you, to trust in you, and always to seek encouragement through your word and in your character. Lord God, I pray that even today we would go out and just reflect on these truths and praise you for them. I pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.